To Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the Memorial of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going? Oh, you know, <laughs> here. Delighted to find out that it's your dad's birthday today, I have to say. Mm. Big uh, best wishes to him. Yeah, it's been uh, very nice. Uh, done a lot of baking over the last couple of days, making him a couple of cakes, and just generally trying to have, you know, a nice small family celebration, you know, like not that it's usually like a big blowout thing every time that, you know, it's his birthday or whatever, but like usually we'll go out for a meal or something and, you know, like we'll just kind of like make it, make an evening of it. But, you know, obviously things being what they are, uh, it's all a lot more just kind of like, oh, here's some, you know, here's some clothes and here's a cake. Uh, let's try and have a nice one. Um, which is is nice in its own way. So we'll uh, go on to the news for this week, and woof, it was a busy one. There were some there were some there were some stories this week. <laughs> uh, I think we should probably start off with the news of Gina Carano being fired from The Mandalorian, because you know, I think it you know like the framing of it, the way it's talking about, it is because she shared a few anti-Semitic. Uh, memes on her social media and 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 it was seemed like oh like she did a couple of bad posts and she was she was fired and that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back in many ways but uh i think it's fair to say she was fired more for just being really shitty over a long period of time to both in her public statements in terms of you know like the stuff she was doing on her social media you know where she would post vaguely alt-right adjacent memes and she was very transphobic and islamophobic but also and she was doing that pretty much you know for the entire like last year she's doing it fairly periodically and people would call her out for it and she just didn't do anything to change that and also you know like i said she was she she kind of like posted racist and transphobic stuff and she was on a show where the star of that show is Pedro Pascal, who is, you know, a Chilean immigrant to the United States, naturalized American citizen, whose sister is a trans woman, and who, because he's just a perfect person, you know, (laughs) repeatedly spoke to her about this and tried to, you know, explain to her why the stuff she was doing was harmful, and then she just didn't do anything. So I think largely, like, the broader painting is she was fired because she was making a the work environment like fairly toxic and that you know i think that's that's a fair reason to fire someone not necessarily oh you posted a few bad posts but like you posted a lot of bad posts for a long period of time you're an embarrassment to the company from a pr perspective and also you made it like deeply uncomfortable for people to work together work with you like that seems like a fair reason to fire someone i would say but I kind of find it hard to I find it very hard to kind of like celebrate this in a lot of ways that people are because while you know I think she seems like a pretty bad person the f- the way in which it's being framed is oh cancel culture cancel culture like she, she you know people should be fired her for being conservative etc etc and so she's able to kind of immediately just kind of f- uh jump straight into the martyrdom 
industrial complex that the right wing media has, you know, where she's gonna make a film with Ben Shapiro's production company and all this sort of stuff. So like she she is able to portray herself as a victim of kind of like leftist repression or whatever in Hollywood, as opposed to someone who was just awful to work with and just kind of ran out of chances when the people working for her seem to be very, very lenient with her for a very long period of time. And of course, we're all going to rush to see that uh, Shapiro <laughs> production uh, mm. mop and bucket in hand. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think lenient, yes, or maybe just, I think arguably too lenient because mm. I think it's not, you know, in terms of this so-called culture war, you're right, like anyone who is let go under certain circumstances is then sort of like, oh, they can't handle the truth or snowflakes, etc. And it's like, no, any job, <laughs> literally mm. any job, you couldn't do those things because of your constitution that you love so much. <laughs> like, you know, freedom of speech, I think, you know, with all the freeze, peach, uh, sort of uber hardcore whatever they just fundamentally don't understand what it is and i think if we manage to reframe it as the kind of as the right to speak because just this 2-1 philosophy graduate learned about rights back in the day and you know freedoms are underpinned and facilitated by duties like it doesn't mean mm. an absolute you know freedom doesn't mean a free-for-all <laughs> freedom for all doesn't mean oh and yeah i don't know i mean was she that good an actor anyway <laughs> there's there's probably lots of reasons but yeah i i mean the like the one good performance she gave she was largely overdubbed by another actor in uh in haywire where oh, yeah, uh soderbergh overdubbed her with laura san giacomo there you go that's kind of ironic isn't it <laughs> that her mm how she said things was the problem. So you could argue that this is the second time this has happened to her. Yeah, I mean, fine. You know, she can go and be part of that industrial complex and maybe we sh there shouldn't be this kind of, I don't know, maybe glee or kind of like self-fulfilling lefty complex. It's more just like, good, she's gone. <laughs> um, mm. But, and I think there's still that very like claiming sort of, quite bold wins instead of focusing on you all realize we're still kind of finding out the worst about Marilyn Manson and Army Hammer and everything was quite clear for a long time and we're still not believing people you know mm. and I'm like I think we should focus on what the real issues are rather than someone who was you know who just happened to luck out by being in the Mandalorian is now no longer in it because of being incredibly upfront about how hateful they were. <laughs> mm, yeah. And and also, like, underpinning a lot of it as well, there's this kind of sense of, like, you know, people being like, well, good luck finding work if you can't work for Disney. It's like, that's a problem in itself that Disney shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't uh, own so much stuff that if you get fired by Disney, it could be like the end of your career. And it's not going to be the end of her career. She'll be able to find work, you know, wherever. And that's why also like people comparing this to like the blacklist um, in the 50s for communists is like totally insane because 
if you were if you were blacklisted, you literally couldn't work. Mm. And if you did work, you had to do it under a pseudonym. Like she's not going to show up on you know the Ben the whatever Ben Shapiro movie that she shows up as uh, she works on like having to use a different name or whatever like she can she can work and, and conservatives in hollywood can work plenty and you know like you know vince vaughn's a conservative and he's not he's a you know a different kind of conservative to her by all accounts but you know he's a conservative and he makes plenty of movies and you know he was on curb last year like there's nothing that stops people from being conservative and working in hollywood it's just like if you cause triple four the companies that you work for and then that points out all other problems which is like you know at will employment and then not necessarily being strong enough labor unions in uh in america in general that someone can just be fired on a whim you know that's that's a problem in and of itself although in this case you know i think the pattern of behavior kind of negates that a lot like if you're just like really bad to work for work with for a long period of time then i think you know at a certain point people are going to stop defending you and just be like, yeah, just, just go away. Um, which is, is basically more or less what happened. Well, I, uh, you know, Gina Carano's agent has it, you know, has a tricky time ahead, but I hear their new client, Dina Tirano is, uh, <laughs> is some hot stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just imagine her walking into, uh, into Bo's bar in a top hat and a <laughs> top hat and a mustache. In related news, uh, because on the same day that the news broke that Gina Cryo had been fired from The Mandalorian, it was also announced that her co-star, Pedro Pascal, had been cast as the lead in The Last of Us, the HBO adaptation of the uh, Sony PlayStation series uh, of games. Well, I guess it's two, and some deals. That game's being adapted uh, as a miniseries that's, I think, going to come out next year. And uh, I think that's a good choice he's a good actor he i think he's got the right kind of ruggedness but also kind of like sadness to him that is a really big part of the character of joel uh in that game and he could really kind of like sell that although i do kind of find myself thinking that the miniseries <laughs> last of us seems like a redundancy in some regards because the game was so kind of like indebted to prestige tv to begin with yeah. that like I, the idea of then doing it as a tv series even if you know it's got good people involved just strikes me as kind of like a really weird choice yeah i mean you're right because like uncharted makes sense because mm. it's essentially a romp and it doesn't yeah. have a huge amount of character development where a because it's not really for that, but a film could pull that out. Whereas, yeah, like The Last of Us, I mean, I played a lot of it, Ed, and I'm not someone who, as a gamer, really prides themselves on being able to sort of basically push game controls particularly well, and I managed mm. to get quite far. But the whole point is that the story's all laid out kind of before you. And I don't mean that in a sort of superficial way, but it's more of a story than it is a game. Mm. so okay cool i guess i i mean who is this going to appeal to like people who've heard this story is great but don't want to play the game because everyone who's played the game is going to be like, I, I don't i don't know but i guess it's just a recognizable property and if they try and spin it out into a franchise i mean of course pedro is a good sweet angel man 
um, mm. as far as we know. <laughs> but yeah, I fail to see the point as much as I'd like to see him in something new. And and again, like, but there's got to be a better sort of action vehicle for him, surely. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that that's kind of like the thing for me is like I like Pedro Pascal a lot. I really enjoy him in uh, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. I really liked him. You know, he was like just such a real highlight of Game of Thrones. Like, yeah, it it's uh, probably a coincidence that the show kind of started going downhill as soon as his character left that show in spectacularly gooey fashion. But like, I always kind of like feel as like that was something that the show absolutely nailed and his charisma was such a big part of it. And yeah, it it does kind of make me feel like this, even though he seems like he could do a good job with that, that maybe it's not necessarily making the best use of him. Because also the character of Joel, you know, he's very taciturn and very, uh, you know, he suppresses a lot of his emotions because he's been through absolutely horrible things. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if that maybe runs counter to the undoubted charisma that Pedro Pascal has and that he you know exudes in in absolute buckets in um Wonder Woman 1984 and his you know various although I haven't seen the Mandalorian I don't know if you know acting within a helmet dampens that a little bit mm. or how well that works but yeah it, it's kind of interesting to see and and then you know the fact that Craig Mason's making it and obviously he's coming off the the success of Chernobyl and stuff like that it it does Strike me as interesting that you're starting to see, you know, big players like HBO do something like this where they're clearly putting a lot of time and effort and resources into a video game adaptation in a way that you don't really see elsewhere in the West where, you know, like usually it's very much kind of like a quickie project. They kind of like knock out and they think, ah, you know, we'll do this adaptation of, of, resident evil and see how it goes and you know if it makes a bit of money we'll make more of them like isn't it never feels as if they put a huge amount of love and care into these sort of things whereas this definitely feels like it could if it it turns out to be good like it could be a watershed thing for adaptations of video games and our final story this week were the various allegations uh that came out about joss whedon the creator of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, um, Firefly, all of those various things. As someone who was a very uh, important part of geek culture for the last you know, 20 years or so. Very much a formative figure for a lot of people who are like into genre cinema and TV. And someone around whom a lot of allegations have been kind of out in the open for, for a while now. Like a couple of years ago when his uh, details of his divorce kind of like came out and there were like lots of reports about him gaslighting his wife or his ex-wife and did this uh, portrayal of him as some you know someone who's kind of like fairly abusive in his personal life but uh over the last year or so there's been a lot more focus on on him and the way in which he interacts with people in a professional sense uh, mainly kicked off by hear accusations from ray fisher who played the character of cyborg in justice league and who accused uh Joss Whedon had been very abusive to him on the set when he was shooting the reshoots for that sort of thing. And this then prompted Charisma Carpenter, who worked on Buffy and Angel, to post about the experiences she had working with Joss Whedon, where he was uh, incredibly cruel to her and basically fired her for getting pregnant 
uh, at one point had a meeting with her where he in you know basically tried to pressure her to have an abortion and this has then kind of led to a cascade of other cast members kind of like coming forward uh, michelle trachtenberg talking about how there was a rule that she was not allowed to be alone with joss whedon or uh sarah michelle geller like saying you know like i'm proud to be associated with the character of buffy summers i would not like to be associated with the name joss whedon and things like that and yeah it, 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 all of these things have like come out and there's been a very much a sense like for a while now that maybe joss whedon's a pretty bad person but this felt like a very comprehensive accounting of that um so it went from kind of hearsay and rumor and just kind of like you know a few kind of tidbits people were hearing here and there to a lot of people coming out and basically saying yeah he, he's he's like not only like bad to people in his personal life but like he made working for him like a deeply unpleasant and toxic experience for you know dozens of people like what i was about to say ed what year is this i mean i know <laughs> that has different connotations now it's 2021 still guys but I saw a tweet that I think really summed it up. And I know, you know, so much of the news that we've been discussing for like a couple of years is around the idea of like who's been cancelled or not or cancel culture. And it just keeps coming back to me for things like if cancel culture were real, says this tweet, then we wouldn't keep getting these allegations about Joss Whedon every Mm. couple of years. And it just seems that he is vastly unpleasant to work with. And again, this was kind of my point with... um, Gina Carano is like well you know Joss Whedon's still allowed because I guess there's this simulacrum or kind of veneer of you know but I created Buffy how can I not be a feminist um Mm. and how sinister he really is and I think it takes an awful lot for someone like Charisma Carpenter to come forward and to stand in solidarity with Ray Fisher and a lot of people I saw were sort of criticizing Sarah Michelle Gellar and uh, Michelle Trachtenberg for their sort of either statements or comments and I'm like no 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 they're um they're not distancing themselves from what happened I think again we we can never be too sure of the legality and the behind the scenes of whether there's active cases and I really commend Charisma Carpenter for coming forward because I think all of that just sounds so horrific and again with Joss Whedon like he sort of you know he can launch a career and he can break one and I think that is exactly what he did with her because he couldn't Mm. he couldn't control her to the extent that he wanted is what it seems like from the narratives that we have (laughs) I'm a scared big Whedon will come after me obviously and you know the way that he's sort of treated other people it's it's all just it's all really icky I've I'd completely forgotten about the details of the divorce with his wife and I think you know Michelle Trachtenberg herself said something along the lines of like we all got through it Mm. and I think again when Joss Whedon was at his peak this was at the time before the internet and social media were what they were so it would be a lot of kind of forums and things but there wouldn't be that same level of I'm not going to call it like call out culture or whatever there just wasn't the platform for a lot of people like if you you know around about the time when Charisma Carpenter was on Angel either the trades picked you up when you were a hot thing or there's nothing 
Mm. But now with kind of personal platforms of Instagram and Twitter and other stuff, you know, there's actually a way to be open about that now. Yeah. I think as well with the case of Joss Whedon, I think the thing that it reminded me of in a lot of ways was the whole thing around Joss, uh, around John Lasseter and Pixar. Yeah. Um, where a lot of it comes down of like what people talk about the like the casual cruelty of him like you know in a white writer's room taking pride in making the women who worked on the show cry when they would have like note sessions and kind of like being very cruel to them in kind of like criticizing their work and like just really kind of like delighting in it is if you are the person who created the show and you're the person who establishes the culture of the show and you kind of establish the the boundaries, then that means that people don't feel like they can call you out on it because it seems as if like you don't understand like the way the industry works or whatever. You think, oh, no, you're meant to kind of like, you know, ball busting is like a big part of like working in writer's rooms or things like that. And if someone cries, you know, like, oh, you know, that's just how it works or whatever, as opposed to like you see that from the outside you say no this seems like incredibly bad and like a deeply unhealthy thing for um working together and trying to make this show and you know as ever in these things you know it comes down to power who has the power who is able to abuse it in whatever ways and who is able to kind of like set up protections around themselves whether it's like legal protections or if it's just kind of you know you you set the tone and you create the culture around a show so that people feel as if oh no this is just how you make tv like this is just how it works and to to the point where you internalize that and don't feel like you could speak out and say yeah no this seems this seems very bad so we'll go on to the main topic this week and fittingly because uh joss whedon was is a kind of like third generation television writer his father and his grandfather both worked in television we're going to be talking about nepotism in film and television you know the practice of people getting jobs in the industry because they have family connections and this is largely because of the release of malcolm and marie the movie by sam levinson who in addition to directing that and directing assassination nation and creating euphoria is the son of barry levinson the oscar-winning director of rain man and you know many many other movies and there was a lot of talk about nepotism around the release of malcolm marie which by all accounts is not all accounts but by most accounts is a pretty terrible movie and one that feels very inside baseball there's very much someone who has grown up in the industry kind of using his characters as mouthpieces to complain about the industry and people then you know talking about clearly you know has the position he is where you know he's got an hbo show and he's directed a couple of movies because you know his dad is a very powerful figure in the industry and you know can obviously open a lot of doors and provide a lot of connections to that sort of thing and then that online kind of like spurring a broader discussion about nepotism because it is very widespread and uh you know a lot of people's favorite actors and directors are the product of nepotism so I thought it'd be fun to kind of like talk about that and to talk about, you know, where personally do you kind of like draw the line? Uh, And I've been thinking about this as well, even before Malcolm Marie, because there were a series of tweets from an account I follow uh, called Women Film Directors who who kind of like 
showcase the work of, of, of women who make movies and they shared a article an old article old old article about Sofia Coppola I think from around the release of Lost in Translation and you know, pointing out how the framing of it was incredibly sexist because it was talking about her in relation to her husband at the time Spike Jones, and obviously her father Francis Ford Coppola and yeah I agree with that I think you know it's kind of sexist to only frame her work in the, the in relation to the men that she was related to or that she was married to but then as the thread kind of continued on you know the account tweeted this thing where they the way they said um yeah I'm glad that there are cinephiles now who like when they hear the name Coppola they think Sophia and they don't think about who her dad is and that kind of set off a conflict in my head because like yeah it's good that she's recognized as herself but I, I feel it's like really disingenuous to pretend that who her father was wasn't like a very important thing at least in the early stages of her career because he produced a bunch of her movies and even aside from that you know she got to grow up working on his films as an assistant or visiting them or acting in them like she got a lot of experiences that wouldn't be available to someone who didn't have that kind of a a background and so that that's kind of like the thing that kind of started me thinking about all this stuff because like she is one of my favorite working directors i've loved pretty much every movie she's made except ironically for the one that everyone likes lost in translation and but but at the same time like as much as i love her work and look forward to every new movie she is like just like at my core i'm i do find i do think like nepotism is kind of like a very corrosive and bad thing yeah i go back and forth on this all the time ed because i as everyone's probably aware really just like it's a disgusting level of socialist now (laughs) so this whole uh to borrow a phrase from uh dewey finn slash ned schneebly the nepotiz uh (laughs) is not great and i think it throws up for me every time i try and dig into it is that kind of nature nurture thing Mm. how much talent is sort of is, is there a sort of genetic element to it? But the thing is, in our culture, you generally nurture with who you have nature with. Mm. So that's why the argument is kind of like, well, that doesn't really get us anywhere. I think with Sofia Coppola, great example, not just because I finally watched The Bling Ring yesterday mm. and really liked it. It's a good movie. Yeah, very uh, great um Harris Savidi's uh, cinematography, much missed, much missed cinematographer. Totally, and that it was dedicated to him, beautiful movie. The thing about her, and admittedly I haven't seen Somewhere or On the Rocks, which I think are more face on in terms of her relationship with a father. Yeah. Even though there's a lot of it kind of going through it, but I do think she gets an awful lot of misogynistic because i remember was it can that she got a nod and quentin tarantino was on the jury and i think they dated for like a hot minute and everyone was like oh he just gave it to her because she's his ex and it was like um mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. and if we're gonna play that game <laughs> then <laughs> nothing in hollywood is ever earned right um and i think even though i haven't seen Coppola's films that are more directly about a father-daughter relationship, I think she manages to create such a distinctive style and 
uh, sort of theme in terms of, you know, I think she was doing the feminine gaze long before it was really sort of in the mainstream of the discourse. I think she generally has um, an overriding message over her oeuvre, um, which is nothing is quite as it seems. Nothing mm. is as rosy or as perfect. You kind of have to steal or pretend. Um, so much of this is just illusion, but what a pretty illusion it is. And I totally understand why it's appealing because look at how beautiful we've made this. And I think because there's that running through her work, there is a sense of self-awareness that is much lacking in a lot of other people who are benefiting from the old um, uncle slash father slash <laughs> slash slash slash. And, you know, because... It's interesting to see, take the Coppolas as an example, because they are an American dynasty, which mm. isn't, I mean, what, the Coppolas, the Houstons, I couldn't really name many others, because that's so much more common in the UK, not only because of like, well, you know, the fucking aristocracy, but, you know, the whole kind of, the whole structure of certain private schools and certain drama schools and being in London like it's all in one city it's not even across like New York and LA <laughs> um, mm. and a distinct lack of uh, even sort of any sense of openness to immigrants in a way that was just different in America right like around uh, the war and you know because it's not just Sophia there's also Jason Schwartzman there's Nicolas mm. Cage who are all mm. copplers and I think the you know they are talented but i think the question is always whoever you're looking at it's like but who am i not seeing who could mm. be in their place and i do think there's something to be said even again if it's a veneer or it's a tactic and it's machiavellian i think it works because for example carrie fisher you know never claimed a kind of i did this all on my own narrative she never really spoke about it yeah. she you know she was much more aware of look, I have the parents that I have, the family that I have, you know, however rich and famous I am, never stop me from being mentally ill. And she just struck the balance of like, because I think she was very wry and grew up in what was essentially a broken and very dysfunctional home, given her father's antics with Elizabeth Taylor. And she managed mm. to be very funny about it. But there was also the pressure of, you know, not only having famous parents, but being a child of the Hollywood dream couple and the glamour couple. So, and it, and I think Debbie Reynolds, from what I understand, wasn't exactly pushing her into work. And I think the fact that she, Carrie Fisher did so much uncredited script doctoring work, I think is quite mm. interesting in that, you know, she was clearly around, but wasn't like pushing to have, you know, she, I think there's just something refreshing about Carrie Fisher and that she had nothing to prove because I think she knew she wasn't going to win. I think also with Carrie Fisher, like one of the things I think that, that in considering the subject more generally is I do feel like the most important thing in kind of, I guess, being able to shrug off accusations of nepotism is just time because at, you know, when I you know, was young in the 90s, and you know started watching like star wars like it never occurred to me that she might be the child of some famous people mm. like i didn't learn that until like not long before she died i don't think like it never i, I don't think i ever realized that yeah oh yeah her mum was in 
singing in the rain even mm-hmm. though that was like one of my fav my favorite movies like she was just you know she played princess leia in that and you know she was a you know kind of great writer and all this sort of stuff like i knew all that about her but because by the time that i started to kind of like get really into movies debbie reynolds wasn't really appearing in things very much anymore like there was never that sense of like people would feel the need to point that out and and this is also similar i think in the case of like jeff bridges who is you know one of my favorite actors and someone who i just think is like just such an incredible screen presence by the time that i started kind of getting into movies uh, in a serious way like lloyd bridges had passed away and like even before then he wasn't really acting in stuff anymore so like for me jeff bridges was just like a guy who was just all in in all these really really great movies and like i i do feel as if there is this kind of like generational thing where just like if you last long enough in the industry like all the people that cared that your parent was also in the industry and was famous they die or they become like their concerns become less relevant because you hang around for so long and you do so much work that you know a whole new generation comes up who don't know who your father or mother or whatever is like they just know you as being like the person that you are and there is i think there is like a real sense that if you just live long enough like all the nepotism will just kind of like slide off of you anyway regardless of your relative talent yeah because i guess the main sort of argument against nepotism is like getting the start is the hardest part Mm, and again it's not just family links because you know along those lines as you were saying ed i think you know bridges is an excellent example but also the douglases um Mm. and arguably michael douglas is more famous than kirk douglas but that's because we are of the generation that we are and our sort of matinee we're more familiar with michael douglas than kirk douglas and i think it's not simply family it can just be who you know because as far as i'm aware i think emma stone was someone's girlfriend for a while and was told oh you know she's hilarious and it's difficult because again i think like i think the the children now is a really interesting point because being famous is a really different thing and a lot of these children we're we've been aware of them since birth like (laughs) because of the the celebrity um, complex is just a different level than it was in, you know, say, like, you know, Billy Lord, for example, Carrie Fisher's daughter, aware of her being born or, you know, Carrie Fisher has a daughter, but not to the same degree that Billy Lord has now had her own son and how that, you know, the sort of uh, online inches that that will fill because she kept it pretty under wraps until he was born um but you know what i mean and judd apatow and leslie mann maud and iris their daughters you know i think maud apatow is a really solid actor i i think mm. she has a kind of naturalism that's quite enviable um also shout out to leslie mann in the bling ring because i think it's just such an overlooked and underrated like <laughs> hilarious performance and I feel like I'm really looking forward to seeing what Maud Apatow does again in The King of Staten Island. Um, Belle Powley, who is uh, the daughter of an actor, Kate Beckinsale, you know, it kind of goes around. So there's, but I think also it's in certain cases, it's like, well, who else are you going to cast? Because I think Maud and Iris were the kids in, oh. Knocked up. Yes. And this is 40. 
So who else are you yeah. going to cast as Leslie Munn's daughters than Leslie Munn's daughters? <laughs> you know, if they're hanging around. Mm. And you look at Straight Outta Compton with O'Shea Jackson Jr. Like, he is identical to his father. <laughs> it's not even, you know, it's like, who else, who else are you going to cast as him? And he has that access. And, you know, as much as I sort of plant this, everyone should have a fair shot and opportunity it shouldn't just be about uh, who you share DNA with or who you know. I was still like crying like a baby when it turns out that PTA is working with Philip Seymour Hoffman's son and mm-hmm. James Gadolfini's son, Michael, is going to play him. Like, but that's when it's kind of, there's a different argument. And I think what I'm sort of rambling around getting to is that there's points where it's kind of appropriate when you are mm. trying to cast someone who is younger, older, whatever and particularly if your kids are quite young and you're playing an adult i'd also argue i'm quite skeptical of anyone who's like this is a great idea to cast my children Mm. (laughs) you know i don't think the kids necessarily deserve that and whether in the same way with any kind of family business is it just an assumption that you'll go into it now do you actually have much of a choice? I'm not trying to say boo-hoo, pity those poor rich kids, but it's more a kind of what is the cognitive setup and expectation. Like I grew up in a family who'd been, you know, my so my all of my parents' generation had been to university and it was the expectation that all of their children would go as well. And it took me getting to the point of applying to university where I was like, oh, this isn't, I don't have to do this because I went to a college where lots of people were like, yeah, I'm just going to go into work. And I was like, oh, that's rad. That's an option. <laughs> so it's kind of how 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 bubbly is my bubble, I guess, is kind of what I'm, <laughs> the point I'm kind of ambling to. Ed. Mm. Do you think, uh, you know, talking about, um, you know, who aren't we seeing and, and the question of like, you know, are actors who are the descendants of, of other actors or directors who are the directors of other directors taking, you know, people's spots? Do you think as well, like, how high profile the role is also can, like, spur accusations of of nepotism? Like, if someone's cast as the lead in a movie and it doesn't feel as if they've earned their position and they're just there because, you know, they've got famous parents, do you think that that's kind of more likely to spur that feeling than if someone kind of like starts out by being like a supporting player because i was just thinking like what are my one of my favorite products of nepotism of um recent vintage uh is wyatt russell mm. who is the son of kurt russell and, and goldie horn and who i think is a tremendous screen presence I've, i enjoy him in everything that he's in i think he's just such a he's just a delight to see and but he like it didn't feel as if like he really kind of like jumped the line in some respects like you know the first thing i really noticed him him was like he had a supporting role in 22 jump street in which he's super funny Uh. and then you know he's part of the ensemble of everybody wants some and then you know he's in uh, he was the lead in uh lodge 49 which like was a like small very cool little show on amc and like those all feel very appropriate levels to like someone who you know, has a little bit of a leg up because they come from a famous family or whatever, and, and that obviously affords certain advantages, ju- just in terms of the fact that, you know, you grow up, you probably don't worry about money 
the option to pursue artistic pursuits are there for you from the beginning like it's not something that you're necessarily gonna have to argue with your your parents over but like it doesn't feel as if you know he wasn't getting cast straight away as like finn in star wars or whatever like you know he he kind of feels like someone who went for roles that seemed appropriate for someone who was sort of starting out and finding their way in the industry but just you know had a little bit a little bit like they they were new game plusing it essentially like they they started over and they kind of had all of the equipment already but like you know this you still have to play the game yeah and it's kind of further sticking with that genetic pool it's not like kate hudson starred as a baby in private benjamin i didn't check my timeline there i'm sorry um and (laughs) and you know how to lose a guy in 10 days is a supreme to me it is the paradigm of a rom-com and she Mm. is charming and hilarious and unhinged and genuine at every point like she has incredible screen presence and it's like well what would you expect from goldie horn's daughter but i'd argue that kate hudson has her own kind of take on it she's not like goldie horn did a really sort of fun ditzy there's a naivete to a lot of Goldie Horn's characters that Kate Hudson just doesn't have. Ditto, you, you know, you look at Dakota Johnson, who I'm still on the fence about, but you wouldn't say like, oh yeah, she's so like Melanie Griffiths or Tippi Hedren, you know, kind of going mm. right through that line. And I think, I, I mean, I completely agree with you because I think whether they actually appear with them or not is something because going back to Carrie Fisher like you know the first time I remember seeing Billy Lord on the big screen is when she has like a cameo in Last Jedi um Mm. but she's not there as a daughter but she's still there and I'm a bit like "Mm, this is taking me out of it a bit guys as much as I adore that whole like don't get me wrong I think Billy Lord is the best thing in Booksmart and there's not many good things in Booksmart (laughs) because they'll they'll come after me but you know, you look at Jack Quaid. I think mm-hmm. it took me so long, Ed. It took me so long <laughs> to find out. It's like, oh, of course. He is like a perfect sort of um, face smash of Dennis Quaid <laughs> and Meg Ryan. And I was like, I'm such a dumb bitch. I did not realise. But he, I think he has a style of his own. I think he is really talented and like carries mm. the boys. And I think also isn't like, I think maybe it's to do with a lot of kind of managing profiles really well and having a really good publicist and and sort of seeming to be just quite quiet and being like, well, this is the job I do. But when you were first saying about, you know, how egregious things are, I thought in terms of like casting or whatever, I went right back to uh, our Soph and how she just shouldn't have been in The Godfather 3, right? Um, And, you know, but then she found out even in the most you know, you'd hope <laughs> supportive um, environment possible, acting was not for her, but she's an incredible director. So, mm. you know, you wonder if her dad was like, hey, you can be an actress. <laughs> and she's like, um, okay, I guess. And it's like, mm. oh no, wait, I want to do what you do. <laughs> and it's actually amazing at it. Um, and I, in my rewatch of The Sopranos, again, sticking with the Italian Americans, that in that uh, David Chase gave his daughter, uh, Michelle Cesare, sorry, I always murder Italian um, pronunciation, quite a big role as Hunter, but he knew not to give Meadows part to her, you know? So Mm. she's kind of, and she's an interesting foil 
and I think it's part of the whole sort of meta understanding of the Sopranos that David Chase is like, well, my daughter's in this too, you know. But bless her, she's not she's not great, is she? <laughs> mm, yeah, she's like, yeah, like I say, she's a good foil. Mm. But like, she pr- probably would not have been able to kind of like be as good for as long as Jamie Lynn Siegler was, and wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have been able to grow in the way that Meadow grows over the course of that show and like yeah wouldn't have been able to handle the complexities of it but she's she's good as you know the best friend who kind of like every so often gets into trouble by you know going to buy drugs from Christopher or whatever Mm. and to to kind of go back to the the question of time and longevity because obviously like as you said like the start is I think the the start is the hardest part in you know a career in, in show business like getting your big break and obviously like being the child of famous people can be a really helpful or not even just famous people just like powerful people in the industry like if you're you know if you're the son of michael eisner you get to direct sahara then that break is important but do you feel like just through the sheer amount of time uh, and people just demonstrating their talent that they kind of like feel as if they earn that position like that that's the inherent arc of 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 someone's career and, and how people feel about someone in terms of nepotism like you start off taking some degree of umbrage with it which you know kind of varies situationally but then you get 10 15 20 years into someone's career and you see that they've done like good work and that that just by that very nature at a certain point you have to feel like yeah okay like you've justified your position there because like for me someone like you know uh angelica houston or john mm. houston for even for that matter you know like they they were both people who worked for so long and like even if you know their parents were very very um successful in in the same field that they worked in and they worked with their parents you know obviously john houston directed uh both his daughter and his father to their oscars mm. at a certain point you have to look and say yeah she's like one of the one of the great actors of her generation he's one of the great directors of his generation. Like at a certain point you have to be like, yeah, they may have had a bit of a leg up, but they, they pretty much earned that position eventually. Yeah. And I think that's kind of it. it. Like it's the ickiness over the bump of getting a start. I think because there is the fetishization throughout our culture of meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the, I it's sort of misplaced because once you're in there are people who are talented and who continue to work and you can see why they have their place where they are because they produce quality but yeah uh, I don't know where this is how I always feel and I I think the thing about Hollywood is that it's again a microcosm that has the most bizarre exposure so again it's that thing of like it's actually a very tiny group of people in proportion to how many human beings are on the planet but they get the most coverage so we think oh that's how that's how it actually is and the thing about Mm. that is that they're all more likely to know each other and get married to each other and (laughs) have children as a lot of people do who meet their spouses at work (laughs) and i think 
how else is it going to be like there's probably a very high proportion of nepotism but in terms of you know working with who you know and trust that's a lot of what that's based on and i don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing it's just Mm. like nepotism is just i think the core of why neither of us really like it is the idea that there's an unfairness if someone is put forward and has an advantage because of that connection Mm. which then pushes someone else out you know it's a kind of zero-sum game one for one one in one out thing and i don't know how many people actually come to la and really make it you know Mm. at width of that maybe it's more i don't know i think i think also like the thing with some of the examples that we talked about like sophia coppola or jeff bridges or, or angelica houston i think there's like way more examples you can think of readily of someone who got that leg up and then had a long career and were good than people who got that leg up and then just sucked for like yeah. 50 years Yeah, because at a certain point you know call it meritocracy call it call it the brutal uh levers of capitalism at a certain point like you're gonna not make people money and people are going to be like yeah your dad may have been a great director but you're not making us any money so you're not going to be in consideration for this job and if i I, and like i i find i feel like there aren't that many people that you can point to and say like this person was just like a complete total they were like a resort of nepotism and then they were just like a complete mediocre talent for their entire career and they still remained like at the peak like you still felt as if they were taking jobs away from better people at least when it comes to people in front of the camera or people be or, or directors or writers it's probably pretty different in terms of producers i imagine there's probably a lot of <laughs> really mediocre producers out there whose career that would describe pretty accurately yes yeah because i think the one example i can point to is uh the daughter of nancy myers uh <laughs> hallie myers shire who uh did that film oh god what was it called with reese witherspoon um uh i just think of it as three nice boys that's <laughs> yes. probably that's probably not <laughs> home again home again that's the name of it three nice boys is so much better um because <laughs> that was a that was a really not great um and it's clear that everyone was like cool let's give Hallie a shot I Mm -hmm. I don't notice her getting another one so (laughs) maybe sometimes it doesn't work out so we'll end this episode as we end all episodes of shot of a shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well Emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week it is an article in The Hollywood Reporter uh, by Seth Abramovich, um, I guess it's more sort of profile feature, entitled Searching for Shelley Duval. Mm. It's a really interesting read. And I know it's kind of rich, given that, what's it, three, four years ago, when Shelley Duval was completely duped into being on Dr. Phil, and like every sort of ethical concern was breached, that The Hollywood Reporter covered it in a slightly lurid way. But maybe this is them making it up to her because I thought it was a really balanced profile that didn't sort of say like, oh, it's so weird how she was in Hollywood and now she's not because Hollywood's the best and only thing that anyone (laughs) could ever want to be part of. It doesn't frame her as like an irrevocably damaged victim, but neither does it dismiss the real trauma that she went through. I think it shows how talented she was and on the up she was 
and that there was kind of the worst kind of um, turn and treatment of her and poor intervention or help. And she seems to be doing okay, which is really the thing that I care about most. She just seems like a, a pretty rad person as ever. Um, but I think it's like, it's nice to see that there is an uptick in better ethics in these kind of humanising profiles, basically. Um, so yeah, that's Seth Abramovich's um, feature on Shelley Duval. Cool. I'm going to recommend uh, a movie that just came out on HBO Max and I think is also in theatres because of their weird thing that they're doing this year, <laughs> uh, which is Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, a movie about Fred Hampton, the Black Panthers leader who was uh, killed in the 70s at the young age of 21. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya plays uh, Fred Hampton and it's a kind of a great, great role for him, like a real... I mean, it's not star making because he's obviously a star already. He's been in a bunch of big movies and demonstrated for, you know, going back a decade at this point. You know, if you go back to when he was on Skins, demonstrating that he's just like a wonderfully fun and charismatic actor. And but but, you know, it's it's a great performance from him. It's a real showcase for him. You know, you really do get to see him as this kind of like fiery figure, although the story is really told from the perspective of an FBI informant who was put into the Black Panthers in uh, Chicago to kind of get close to Hampton and provide information to the FBI played by Lakeith Stanfield who does kind of like a great performance as you know the increasingly tortured betrayer the Judas of the title and Jesse Plemons is also very good in it as the FBI handler who works with uh, Lakeith Stanfield and as I've, I've said uh, in a couple of places gets to act out the are we the baddies sketch from uh, <laughs> that much damage to the web look multiple times over the course of the uh, over the course of the movie as he maybe realizes that uh J. Edgar Hoover may not have the best interests of uh the of America at heart when he you know kind of like targets the Black Panthers. Um I think it's a very good movie in general. I think it's very good at getting at the the radicalism of the Black Panthers, not shying away from the fact that they were, you know, a socialist organization and they did the good things in the community in Chicago and other cities. Um and just generally emphasizing the tragedy of fred hampton's death by kind of pointing to this like by creating this sense of melancholy of you know what did america lose when he was gunned down by the chicago police and you know when what in a broader sense did america lose from the fbi and the american government kind of like stamping down on black radicalism in the 60s and 70s and i just think it's a really really good piece of work and everyone should kind of like check it out it, like i said it's on hbo max it's also in theaters in the u.s if you're brave enough to go and watch a movie in a theater you know but uh it's it's, it's very very good uh, highly highly recommended if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast and please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fans spotify all the usual places races reviewers and recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me free britney 